Hello there, it's Matt Walker here, and welcome back to the podcast. Ah, the wonderful art and skill of napping. Well, <laughs> well, actually, there's no art involved, really. It's all about rigorous science and the science of napping, at least on this show and at least with this episode. Previously on the podcast, I've spoken about the basics of naps. I've spoken about their origin, some of their functions, and also some of the dangers of napping. And that's dangers in parentheses in terms of dangers for certain people. And if you want to listen to that episode, it is number seven on this podcast show. But today, we're going to focus on a different question. Indeed, an even more basic and fundamental question. How to nap? And specifically, for how long should you nap in the afternoon if you're going to nap at all? And as a structure, in this episode, we're going to walk through a number of steps. First, we will briefly recap the basics of naps. And then second, we're going to start examining exactly how long should you nap. In other words, it's almost like a drug study where we develop what's called a dose-response curve. And the dose here, of course, is the duration of the nap, and the response is the benefit for your brain and also some of the potential downsides. And I do want to mention some of the downsides because it's a big part of this equation of how we think optimal naps can be designed. So in other words, there is a cost-benefit ratio. And we will walk through that dose-response curve. We will start with a low dose, in other words, a short nap, and then we will go up, and then we will go up and up in nap length, continuing to look at that cost-benefit curve. Does that make some sense? Again, I ask as if I am expecting the microphone to give me an answer. Um, and then third, we will finally finish with a synopsis, some take-homes. By the way, I love the word synopsis. Isn't it a wonderful-sounding word? Well, as always on this podcast, would you indulge me in offering you some background as to its origin, its etymology? Synopsis actually comes from the late Latin term that was, in fact, a conversion of the original Greek words of syn, S-Y-N, meaning together, and opsis, meaning seeing. And when we put them together, it is a full, a whole, or a seen-together view of a particular topic, a synopsis. How marvelous is that? Anyway, let's come back to our story, and let's start with the basics of napping and defining what we mean when we talk about napping. A nap is generally a deliberate, but sometimes not, short period of sleep, and for most of us, we think of naps as things that are occurring during the day. In other words, naps would be defined as sleep outside of our typical nighttime rest window. And as you will have heard in episode 7, there are plentiful benefits both for brain and for body by way of naps. But there is also a specific challenge, and that challenge is something that we call sleep inertia. And you know sleep inertia. It is that groggy, disoriented feeling upon awakening. And sleep inertia, 
Uh, I suppose you could almost think of it like a sleep hangover, as it were. But um, <laughs> I think I'm taking that analogy too far there. But sleep inertia is a case almost as though your brain is still in partial sleep mode. And as a result, you don't feel as though from a brain perspective that you're quite operating at optimal speed. It's almost like an old car engine, a classic car engine, where it just needs time to get up to operating temperature and firing on all cylinders. Uh, <laughs> always with the car analogies, Matthew, such as my flagrant motorsport obsession. But coming back to sleep inertia, sleep inertia, that grogginess, that sort of sleep hangover, I'll, I guess I'll still keep calling it that, usually lasts for somewhere between 15 to 60 minutes depending on lots of different factors. And sometimes sleep inertia after a daytime nap can be even worse or more potent than after you wake from a full night of sleep. And in a little while, I'll tell you exactly why that's the case. In part, it depends on the stage of sleep from which you wake. But let's come back to the cost-benefit relationship. In terms of the benefit, for most people who are napping, their main goal is to get a benefit to their brain. And what they're looking for there is really a benefit to their basic alertness and their focus and their concentration, as well as perhaps some improvements in their productivity, as well as their problem solving. So it's those benefits in these studies that we're going to focus on today. A sponsor of today's show is Inside Tracker which is a service that comes out to your home and they will analyze your blood and your DNA to know precisely what is going on inside of you. Hence the name Inside Tracker. They look at your blood, your metabolic signals, your hormonal health metrics, and then they give you a personalized, actionable set of lifestyle changes in response to that readout. And the goal there is to improve your health. I was looking and informed they have some new cardiovascular and new hormonal biomarkers that I'm particularly interested in. One that I'm focused on is something called ApoB, which is an absolutely critical heart health measure. And I get it done now with them somewhere between four to six times a year. Why? Well, my family, unfortunately, has a strong history of cardiovascular disease, so I am checking that pretty ruthlessly. And by the way, I do buy the product myself out of pocket. I don't want to fall prey to any of those trappings and undue incentives. Although, with full admission, I still use my own discount code that you can use to get some money off. And that code for you is insidetracker.com forward slash Matt Walker. So just go over to insidetracker.com forward slash Matt Walker. And again, if you want to get that discount, it is insidetracker.com forward slash Matt Walker. Thanks very much. Let's come back to the cost of napping and that thing called sleep inertia because that is the main cost with naps for most healthy people in terms of a downside. So understanding those two factors, the goals that most people are trying to accomplish 
and the potential downside, which is sleep inertia, let's now start walking through the dose-response curve of naps. How long should you be napping? And we're going to start with the shortest duration of naps, the lowest dose of the drug, as it were, and then we will continue to work our way up. Well, believe it or not, if you look across all of these studies, the shortest nap duration, at least with enough data across multiple studies for us to have some meaningful conclusions, starts at only five minutes. So this would be considered an ultra short power nap, as it were. So let's start with the good news. Naps of five minutes or less don't show any real evidence of that villain, as it were, of sleep inertia. However, such micro naps or micro short naps sadly offer very little in terms of systematic cognitive brain performance benefits. So in other words, no sleep hangover after five minute naps, which is great, but equally no significant return on your five minute nap investment. Now, again, we're talking about on average across individuals, across studies. I know for some people that seems to help a little bit, but we don't see that systematically when we conduct the science. Now, let's increase the dose and dial it up to 10 minutes. Taking a 10-minute nap offers more promise in terms of a benefit. And there is now a comprehensive set of data showing enhancements following a 10-minute nap across various brain functions. And for the most part, these are rather rudimentary brain benefits. In other words, you see improved response times or improved reaction times, as well as an improved ability for sustained attention or sustained concentration. What's amazing, by the way, about these 10-minute naps when you read the details of the studies is that they are surprisingly durable. And what I mean by that is those benefits will last for several hours later after just that 10-minute nap. Now, I should note, by the way, that if you gather together all of those studies and look at all of the studies in terms of those that show benefits, there are a few stray reports that demonstrate no significant benefit for brain performance, at least for basic alertness. But the majority do show that effect. And as to the cost, well, thankfully, with 10 minutes, we don't see too much sleep inertia. So again, a nice benefit relative to the cost ratio. Now, let's scale things up and go longer. What happens if we extend the duration of naps to 15 minutes? Well, here, the findings in terms of benefits are even more clear, and they're even more consistent. What we've discovered is at least three set of reliable brain benefits. 15-minute naps will firstly improve your general alertness. Second, they will improve your brain's ability to concentrate and have that focus that you want. And third, what we've discovered is that naps of a 15-minute duration will also improve your logical problem-solving abilities, and you can solve those challenges more efficiently. So that sounds fantastic. <laughs> well, not so quick there, Matt. The only slight downside is that after a 15-minute nap, now we do start to see that creeping appearance of sleep inertia. But here's the good news. That sleep inertia after a 15-minute nap dissipates very quickly. And after that sleep inertia dissipates and dissolves away, 
it is replaced by those wonderful brain-enhancing benefits. That's when they start to unfurl. And once again, they will last for several hours later. Next, when we go up to a 20-minute nap length, we see even more impressive improvements in terms of your alertness and more complex cognitive abilities, things such as aspects of your learning as well as your memory function. But as with most of biology, you typically don't get a free lunch. And as you would imagine, the sleep inertia that you will experience after a 20-minute nap is a little bit stronger than that after a 15-minute nap. And what I mean by stronger is that it just takes a little longer to start to fade away. But don't worry, it's still largely short-lived. In fact, after a 20-minute nap, we've discovered that that sleep inertia period, that sort of engine starting to get warm and get up to operating temperature, is evaporated within 15 minutes. So after a 20-minute nap, all you have to go through is just that 15 minutes of sleep inertia. And then after that, you have many more hours of rejuvenated brain function. And I can already sense you're now asking, that's great, what happens if we go to 30 minutes? Well, now the cost-reward balance shifts a little bit, but it remains favorable if you're patient. Because after waking up following a 30-minute nap, what we've discovered is that you will actually suffer a reduced cognitive brain performance ability, and your alertness will be lower than it was either before you took the nap or even relative to a set of individuals who remained awake across that 30-minute period relative to you who has napped for 30 minutes. But again, don't get disheartened because what we found is that following a 30-minute nap, it takes around 35 minutes for that sleep inertia to fade away. And by around 35 minutes, you're back up to your performance that you had just before the nap and then afterwards, that's when you get those major sort of almost nootropic brain benefits, which again, last for several hours later. And in fact, those benefits, by the way, aren't just for basic levels of response time or concentration or focus. They even extend beyond aspects of learning and memory and problem solving. They also provide something called a boost in your cognitive flexibility. So that describes how your brain is able to juggle and deal and mentally comprehend vast sets of information. It's one of our unique human traits, and you get that really nice benefit following a 30-minute nap. And finally, what about going longer than 30 minutes? Well, if we increase nap duration to 45 minutes or then 60 minutes, those benefits continue to scale and they last for an even longer duration of time. The only downside is that it comes with an equivalent cost. The sleep inertia will stick around for longer. In other words, it will feel more severe. So it will take your brain a longer duration of time to get up to that operating temperature and then reveal the benefits relative to something like a 30-minute or especially a 20-minute nap. Now, at the start of the episode, I mentioned that sleep inertia after a nap, particularly a longer nap, can be even worse than the sleep inertia that some of us feel when we first wake up after a complete night of sleep, which would be, let's say, somewhere between seven to nine hours relative 
to a 45-minute nap. Why is that? That doesn't seem to make sense. This podcast is supported by Athletic Greens, which is now known as AG1. AG1 is a comprehensive nutritional drink that contains countless key health components. Actually, let me stop there. I say countless, but I actually know the company. I know how the product is made. And I believe at last count, it's over 75 different vitamins, minerals, probiotics, prebiotics, and other whole food nutrient sources. I do drink AG1 every day for the record. And also for the record, I buy my own supply because of all of the obvious integrity trappings that come with the free product. I know the company well, I know how the product is made, and I genuinely trust in their manufacturing. They are registered and approved by the Therapeutic Goods Administration. They also have GMP stamps, which means Good Manufacturing Practice Badges. Basically, they're rigorous. So if you'd like to pick up an offer and get some money off your first order, and also get some free travel packs, just go to the link drinkag1.com forward slash Matt Walker. So that's drinkag1.com forward slash Matt Walker. And you will get some money off your purchase. So again, last time, that is drinkag1.com forward slash Matt Walker. In truth, I do also use uh, my own link to try and get some money off. Uh, I do buy it myself, but I do use the link to get that code money off too. And you can use that link as well. Thanks very much. Well, I'm rather glad that you asked that question because we've discovered a scientific answer. If you remember all the way back to the very first episode of the show, episode one, that episode was called, What is Sleep? And there, I described your sleep cycle, which starts with light non-REM sleep, and then goes down into deep non-REM sleep, and then, after a while, it will go up into REM sleep, or dream sleep. And thereafter, you repeat this non-REM to REM cycle across the night. On average, although it varies quite significantly from one person to the next, I also noted that the non-REM to REM cycle in us human beings is about 90 minutes in length. So after first falling asleep, you'll go into light non-REM sleep. By the way, don't get confused by that term, quote-unquote, light non-REM sleep, meaning that it is bad sleep. Many people assume that light non-REM sleep is not good sleep, or it serves no purpose. Just so you know, not all light non-REM sleep is non-functional sleep, or in other words, shallow sleep in the sense of being bad. But let me come back to our story, and explaining exactly why you feel sleep inertia after napping. If you look at that non-REM to REM cycle, after about 20 minutes or so after falling asleep for the average adult, your brain transitions from that lighter stage of non-REM sleep and starts to go deeper. It starts to drop into deep non-REM sleep, or what we call non-REM slow-wave sleep. And non-REM slow-wave sleep, or deep sleep, 
is the type of brainwave activity pattern that is furthest away from your waking brain activity. And this fact that your brain will, on average-ish, move into deep non-REM sleep after around 20 minutes or so offers you the answer to the question of sleep inertia after longer naps. Because once your naps go beyond around 20 minutes in duration, on average, that's when you start to likely run into the risk of going into deep, non-REM, slow-wave sleep. And if you try to wake up from deep, non-REM sleep, that's when you get hit with heavy sleep inertia. And I think probably some of us, maybe many of us, have experienced this. Let's say that you go to bed at night normally, and depending on what time you go to bed, let's say you get a phone call at midnight or 1 a.m. in the morning, that's when you're going to be hit with this strong sleep inertia. Why? Because you were woken up by the phone call from the deeper stage of deep slow wave sleep. And you almost feel half asleep. And some people will say, gosh, I don't even remember that phone call. And it is deep non-REM sleep that has been demonstrated by scientific studies to be the root cause of sleep inertia. Because we and others, when we do these studies, we will often bring people into the laboratory and we'll place electrodes on their head. And that way, we can understand what stage of sleep that they are in when we wake them up. And what we found across most of these is that on average, with those naps, by around minute 18, and again, it's going to vary based on who you are and different factors, but on average, by 18 minutes, you start to run the risk of going down into deep non-REM sleep. And if we wake you up thereafter, let's say around a minute 25 or 30 or minute 40, and you're coming out of deep sleep, which is much more likely, it's deep sleep that again is the villain, which <laughs> I don't like using. Deep sleep is just fantastic. It's amazing stuff. So I shouldn't call it a villain, but it's the underlying mechanistic reason, just to be scientific, for why you will typically suffer sleep inertia. So there is your rundown of the art and skill of napping. We described what the different dose response relationships are. We described the types of benefits that you get from those different duration of naps. And we also spoke about the minor downside of napping, which is this thing called sleep inertia. And we also gave an explanation for why sleep inertia occurs. Oh, and by the way, would you like to know the origin of the popular term, a power nap? It's got a fascinating story. Back in the 1980s and 90s, the U.S. Federal Aviation Authority, or the FAA, wanted to see if they could discover different ways to combat the dangers of sleep deprivation that pilots would suffer when they were going on these long-haul flights. And those dangers, by the way, are non-trivial because it's in those later stages of the long-haul flights, when that sleep deprivation is most severe, that we see 60% of all catastrophic plane crashes, or what are technically called hull losses during the landing phase. And of course, it's during the landing phase at the end of the long-haul flights when pilots are going to be suffering the heaviest burden of sleep deprivation. 
So the FAA turned to two sleep researchers, Dr. David Dingers and Dr. Mark Rosekind for help. And it was Dingers and Rosekind, who are, by the way, just two brilliant individuals, scientists, human beings. And it was those two individuals who hypothesized that perhaps the best thing to do, contrary to what you would think, is place a nap not at the end of the flight, but at the start of the flight. In other words, at the start of the upcoming sleep deprivation period. And their reasoning was that that sleep period at the beginning would act like a temporary buffer offering greater upcoming immunity against the onslaught of later sleep deprivation. So it's a little bit like building up a credit at a bank to offset the size and the severity of an incoming debt. And here, the incoming debt is the known debt that will happen by way of sleep deprivation. And sure enough, what they found is that napping earlier in the flight provided exactly this type of resilience to the sleep deprivation suffered during long-haul flights for these pilots. And when Dingers and Rosekind were reporting their findings to the FAA, they suggested developing a term called prophylactic naps. In other words, preventative naps. That's a perfectly great term. But it turns out the FAA wasn't keen on that term. They feared snide remarks among some of the pilots based on the term prophylactic and what it could infer. And so instead, in its uh, infinite wisdom, the FAA opted for a term that invoked more strength and leadership and dominance, perhaps befitting what they felt should be their pilot's sort of professional ilk, as it were. What phrase did they come up with? That's right, power naps. <laughs> and thus, I don't know why I sort of emphasized that term, power naps. And thus, the term power nap was born. <laughs> and with that, uncharacteristically brash ending I will bid you farewell take care and bye for now <laughs>